Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Kuntz, one of the values of turning off the internet, as I've been doing a lot recently, is I don't hear about news until long after it happens. This has not only been the case with our uh, catechism controversy ongoing, uh, but also with the uh, the train derailment and the uh, pollution explosion uh, toxification of a good portion of the United States populated area. And uh, you've been doing some work on the ground, just talking to people that are there. And so I just want to give you a chance at the start of the show here to to talk about how our listenership, who cares about locality, who cares about word and sacrament, uh, who cares about Christianity, not abandoning the poor, uh, what they can do with regard to this event. I have been running a fundraiser called Lutherans for East Palestine area that you can find on GoFundMe. And if you want to donate offline, I would just write a check out to my congregation, Trinity Lutheran Church, Denver, Colorado, with East Palestine in the memo line, and we'll get that conveyed. I know some people don't want to use GoFundMe, which is fine. But we've met and we're now exceeding, which is what I wanted our target to provide a guy named Corey Britton, who, who is a Christian. He is the owner of the oldest, the auto dealership in East Palestine, Britain Motors, which is a Chevy dealership. And I got in touch with him because I was looking around for people to find in East Palestine who would both know what was going on and know how to distribute it. So I first sent a pallet of water, I think, I don't know, a lot of cases, 60, 70, something like that, to him. And he was like, yeah, I'll hand it out for you. And so now what we're doing is we're raising money and then he uses that to buy whatever is needed. So all kinds of things, diapers are in short supply, it turns out, different kinds of food, air purifiers, all kinds of stuff. So this is just kind of a fund that he can use. We don't have a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church in East Palestine. The closest one is either Beaver County, Pennsylvania, that's just over the line. East Palestine's almost on the state line with Pennsylvania or the Youngstown area. And there are folks in Ohio, I know, and in PA doing stuff as well out of our churches. But this is a way for people nationwide and even even worldwide, if they they like, to help out in the name of Christ in East Palestine. Right. Because in the midst of everything else that's going on, conspiracies and otherwise, uh, what matters is real human lives on the ground. And uh, Christianity always cares about about these things. I don't know. Does any of that news tie into Thanksgiving or do we have some other kind of seg into our, uh, the American myth? It ties into the history of Thanksgiving, which is the way that we're going to look at the first lasting English settlement in what's now the United States of America in this way that as we, as we've talked about before, 
America is never in the way that state churches are in Europe, a Christian nation such that American, let's say, peoplehood or ethnicity is tied to a specific version of Christianity. It is, however, historically Christian, presumptively Christian, just of various kinds, or we would now say various denominations. And I have found that in working with the people in East Palestine, and I've also been in contact with people in Darlington, Pennsylvania, which is real close. I want to say it's about seven miles away from East Palestine, that they are by and large Christian people, but that by and large Christians are not helping in an organized way, except in the ad hoc way that I am or various groups are. Because I would, (laughs) the sad thing about a lot of people in our country is that they are about as neglected, especially by the powers that be, as the Jamestown settlers believed they were. (laughs) Now, the irony here is that Jamestown, they actually decide to leave at one point, and we'll talk about that today. They decide to leave, and the reason that Jamestown endures is simply because in the middle of leaving, they encounter a resupply ship. They realize like someone has had them on their mind. Someone has been thinking about them and trying to help them. And that sense that you are alone, I think, is always a reason for giving up. Now, I think I think partly and, and personally, East Palestine, not only do these people talk the same way that my relatives do, Eastern Northeast Ohio has the same accent as Western Pennsylvania. So this kind of tugs on me in a way that not everywhere in the United States does. But these people are like lots of people in lots of corners of America in that they are forgotten. And the sense that you are forgotten is not is not something that I, I think any human being really is intended by God to live with or and certainly not to grow up with. But there are plenty of people who know from the condition of their community, the fact that the president went to Ukraine and not to Ohio, which is a lot closer, that they are forgotten. And that doesn't mean that no one's doing anything, but it means that they will quickly go away. So I wanted to give them the sense that they were not forgotten in the same way that the resupply ship that comes to Jamestown in early 1610 convinces them to turn back. I mean, they just cannot believe what they're seeing because someone is actually coming to them. And if you go in the Facebook group that's devoted to East Palestine, which is a town of only 4,000 people, the Facebook group probably has 10 or 11,000 people now, it, but it's a great place to find out what's going on and 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 who needs what. Um, it's called East Palestine Talk. When you go in there, you will realize that a lot of the people coming to East Palestine. I mean, actually physically coming, which I I wish I could do. I'm just kind of too far away right now, is these are people from other forgotten places. (laughs) Hmm. Because this is the way it goes, right? When when you know what that is like, you don't want other people to have that. So there have been a lot of very beautiful things going on. And if you are on Facebook, that's that would be one reason to stay there is so that you can be in contact with some of these people and just kind of see. I mean, people came from the county where I grew up, Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. They took a convoy yesterday to East Palestine, started out at midnight, got there about kind of mid-morning, and I dropped off tons of stuff in tractor trailers because, you know, lots of guys with CDLs in Schuylkill County, and then they turned around and went home. But just beautiful things to see and wonderful things. And 
you will see these things if you get in contact with people like this. So if you want to give to the GoFundMe, that's wonderful. A lot of people are doing that. I love that they know. I mean, Corey, the guy I mentioned earlier, I wanted to give anonymously. Corey said, well, at least can we put your church on the donation, the original pallet? And I was like, yeah, you can put my church on the donation. That's okay. But the Lutherans for East Palestine is in the name of the you know Lutheran Christians who are giving to this and who are saying, you know, you are not forgotten. We remember you. God remembers you. You're not alone. So I would guess that outside of maybe like a seventh grade quiz, most people have forgotten Jamestown. <laughs> yeah, totally. And some of the stuff that we're talking about today is not just forgotten, but probably never known, not even by a seventh grader. And one way to look at the history of the settlement, European settlement of what is now the United States, is to look at it as two failures and then a success that seemed like it was going to be a failure. Because what you're getting in what's now the United States of America is a territory that is almost entirely unknown. I mean, if you think back to the Middle Ages, the territory that the Vikings apparently settled for some amount of time is in what is now Canada, in Newfoundland. So the stuff that is now the United States is is largely unknown. We talked last time about its waves of settlement, some of them by peoples that are almost entirely unknown. One theory about the Book of Mormon is that it's trying to tell you about the mound builders. That's esoterica for another time and probably a different show. <laughs> Dude, but, as uh, long as it gets you on the spaceship in the end, that's all that yeah, matters. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But a way that's a little bit more historically based to look at it is that you have a couple of failures and then a success that looks like a failure. And those couple of failures are by two nations that are really just a lot wealthier, more prominent, and better set up to sustain colonization in the 16th century, which is when they're trying, and that is respectively Spain and France. Now, I think I mentioned last time that the way to look at American history is actually to begin from the Southeast, which is not usually the way that it's narrated to us because those aren't the people instrumental in founding our country, but they are the people who are instrumental in beginning to settle what becomes our country. Florida is, is weirdly significant simply because it's where the Spanish first reach. And it's where, if you want to claim it this way, they base the beginning of an expedition that in 1541 in Texas, okay, so is this like confusing enough? Beginning from Florida, but getting to Texas is celebrated what is claimed by some, including sort of Texas heritage societies as the first Thanksgiving. <laughs> And that's on one of the journeys of exploration that many Spanish settlers will make throughout what is now the American South and Southwest, usually starting out of Florida, which is where they are, of course, based on what's now the American mainland. So if you begin from that perspective, you think, wow, I, you know, what could have occurred? What, what could have happened? All of this predates the settlement even of what is now New Mexico let alone of what is now Arizona and California and Texas itself. So those expeditions, which wander over what is now the American Southeast, Southern Plains, and Southwest, are attempts 
by, and this is what I think is most significant, attempts by groups of men to discover and to find fortunes. So, so real quick then, are these, these are, these are not conquistadors then. These are explorers. These are adventurers. It's, I I would say the difference between a conquistador and explorer is not, I mean, he's, he's wearing, you know, the helmet and the breastplate that you probably think of. The difference is simply what they encounter. And in what is now the United States of America, these men never encounter what they're looking for. What they are looking for is something like what Cortez found in the Valley of Mexico uh-huh. in what is now Mexico, which is a settlement, wealth, power. They do not find those things. They find a land not empty, but nearly so. Yeah, I'm betraying my ignorance. How how far back is Cortez from this Florida, Texas Thanksgiving reality? Cortez is 21 years before the okay. Texas Thanksgiving. So they've seen some excess success That's and they're right. kind of looking for the That's same right. thing. You got to go right. inland for that. My next question is, how'd they get a turkey in Texas? <laughs> Well, they didn't. And that's that's the thing about all three Thanksgivings we're going to talk about today is that none of it involves turkey. Oh, it's a shame. This is wrong. It's a travesty. <laughs> because because I mean, it's not that they couldn't have seen or killed a turkey. It's just probably not probably not where they were when they had this Thanksgiving. The other two, better chance, but probably not because the Thanksgiving that we remember, which we'll talk about next week, is built on the fact that really for Americans' sense of themselves and also for the sense of what is theologically normal in the United States of America, religiously common, and certainly for American self-understanding, the really formative, not only settlement, but also Thanksgiving is the one we're not talking about this week that happens in New England. Mm -hmm. Because even though we're going to talk about Englishmen celebrating a Thanksgiving later on in this episode, it won't be in New England. And for America... New England, with both its history and its theological problems, is generally more important than than really any other region, certainly any other region of original settlement. And that's key to remember because our first two attempts here, respectively, a Catholic Thanksgiving in Texas and a French Catholic Thanksgiving in what is now Northeast Florida, really in the Jacksonville area. This is called the Fort Caroline Settlement, a couple decades, several decades after the Spanish Thanksgiving in Texas, but still in Florida, is that both of those Thanksgivings are by Catholic powers that certainly in the 16th century. So you're talking the Texas Thanksgiving, and this is this is going to be weird, but help, hopefully helpful to listeners. This is happening during Luther's lifetime, right? So the, the Pope was busy, and it, hopefully it also helps to put into perspective, like the Lutheran Reformation is really, really, really important for Lutherans, but it's almost utterly irrelevant for the settlement of America, either by the people that try but don't succeed or by the people that try and do eventually succeed. Yeah, most of the contribution is going to be to like education, right? Just kind of the the school concept and system. There, yeah, there there are all kinds of influences that you can see traced, especially between continental reformers, and even some of the ones that Lutherans tend to be not the biggest fans of, including Melanchthon and Martin Bucer. Um, and Bucer's going to die in England with his ideas being more important than his personal influence. But 
the Lutheran Reformation, the Lutheran lands, including Scandinavia as well as Germany, are are not terribly important for the history of the settlement of what's now the United States of America for reasons that don't particularly, and this is where when I say a theological history of America, I don't mean a history of theology. I mean a history of the theological ideas and religious practices that drove the people who would become the Americans. And those two things are very different because to say a history of theology would be to say, well, let me tell you how the French Jesuits in Canada, you know, changed the upper Midwest, you know, and, 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 and what about being Jesuits particularly made them do that? That, that may or may not be relevant. It may or may not be relevant that, you know, the Lutherans who eventually settle America are by and large going to be what are, what are called pietists. And we can explain that in time. But what matters here is that in the world as it is, which is what we're hoping to record when we're talking about history, in the world as it is, it doesn't only matter what you think. It also matters whether you have the capacity to put it into practice. It matters whether you have the capacity to sustain what you put into practice. And none of that is usually understood by people. They think theology lives in a realm separate from life. And because of that, I find that they tend to be ignorant of or to ignore, those are two different things, to be ignorant of history, but also to ignore in their day-to-day life, all of the other factors going into whether they are going to be able to practice what they believe, but also to sustain what it is that they practice. And I'm interested in all three. I'm interested in theology and in practice and in sustaining. So the Spanish and the French get to what is now not just America, but specifically Florida first, but partly because of distance and partly because of what seems to be relative lack of success, they are not able to sustain their presences there. That is like in the case of the French, as well as the Spanish, but particularly the French, it's hard for them to make the case to sort of headquarters that they need to stay there and that they should put more troops and and more colonists there and so on. And so what happens with the first two Thanksgivings, which are both respectively Catholic days of rejoicing at land that it seems that they have been given. Now, it should also be noted the the French are encroaching there, and that has to do with the fact that the French just generally respect Rome less than the Spanish because the territory has been given by papal decree to the Spanish, but the French aren't really worried about that. (laughs) But in both cases, they cannot make the case that where they are and what they're doing needs to be continued. And so the outside agencies on which they are dependent, royal patronage, funding, in the case of the Spanish, the much more important government on the island of Hispaniola, which is now Dominican Republic and Haiti, is like, well, you know, we don't we don't need to keep doing this, guys. We're not we're not finding what we thought we'd find, and it doesn't matter that much. So you don't develop in Florida, for example, the same kind of mission system that's going to sustain Spanish settlement in the Southwest. And you don't develop in the case of Fort Caroline in the French situation, the kind of sustainable economy that's going to keep at least Jesuit missionaries, if not f- settlers, coming that they are going to develop in what's now Quebec. 
So in the in the Southwest, you know what? I mean, that's a much longer trip. What yeah. is it that makes that valuable? Is it just gold itself? They find actual gold, or is it the people? They, the amount of people they find. They they don't particularly find gold, but what's going to make places like New Mexico first, and then later on, Texas, Arizona is pretty sparsely settled by any measure, but but Alta California, right? What we would call California but they think of as connected to what we call Baja California. It's just all mm-hmm. California, right. right? What's going to make that sustainable is going to be essentially the development of large-scale ranching, which hmm. will first be run by friars with Indian cowboys, and then later on will expand, especially once Mexico becomes independent in 1821 from Spain, will expand into a giant family-based ranching economy. That's going to make those very arid lands profitable and sustainable in a, in a way that you also get in in what's now northern Mexico. But in the 16th century and even in the 17th century, the Spanish haven't, fig- haven't yet figured out how to do that. So I got another kind of off the wall question, maybe. Yeah. I, I remember um, being taught, this is high school. Uh, so you got Jamestown. There was a settlement before Jamestown that, that doesn't make it through the winter, right? Isn't there another another attempt that what you have before Jamestown in the near the tail end of the 16th century, 1585, is what is called romantically the Lost Colony. Yes, this is a fun story. It's romantic. It's exciting. You can make a movie out of it. Well, it's exciting in the sense that you get a settlement in what is now North Carolina by English colonists in and around the Outer Banks that is supposed to result in, and they send, the the big difference between the English vis-a-vis the French and the Spanish is that the English are always going to prize family settlement. So if you're asking the question about sustainability, I think you're always asking a question about family sustainability. Is this sustainable by, for, and with families? Otherwise, you will make some mark. I mean, I live in a state that has a Spanish name, but <laughs> Spanish settlement was negligible in what is now Colorado. And the only place that it did succeed at any point was in Southern Colorado. And that was by families who were shepherds, largely ranchers and shepherds. So the English are going to send families. The French and the Spanish often do not do that. And it is to the degree that they do do it, that they get sustainable colonies that are not just simply slave economies or, you know, a a small Spanish ruling class ruling over a completely non-Spanish country, making it very difficult to propagate Spanish culture. The English are going to sudden families. The romance of the lost colony is that they do apparently just disappear as a group because the the thing about sending families is that you get militarily, you are vastly more fragile when you are asking women to nurture life and children to try to grow up in a completely frontier situation. But they, they drop out of contact later on in the 1580s. And then when any remnant of their settlement is discovered by English sailors, because Something you should know is that sailors usually go places long before other people do. So you get you get English sailors doing cod fishing off the coast of North America 
50, 60 more years. I mean, in what we would think of as like the late Middle Ages, you have European fishermen fishing off the coast of Canada and America. Okay. So you have ships going places long before you have people and resources and stuff going places. But when those sailors find a remnant of where the quote lost colony, the Roanoke colony is what it's usually called. Roanoke, Virginia. I knew I knew the name Roanoke. Thank you. Um, When the lost colony is discovered, there is carved into the bark of a tree, obviously in, you know, letters written by an Englishman, the word Croatoan. And the whole mystery of this is, is that a place? Is that a person? Did they go somewhere? Did they disappear into the woods? So then you're going to get legends throughout the history of particularly Northeastern North Carolina and, and Southeastern Virginia of, well, you know, years later, somebody saw an Indian that looked like a white man, but he was acting and dressed like an Indian, but he had blue eyes and you know, that's sure. That's how you. That's how you get the romance. So, but that is that's that's a failed that's a failed attempt. It's just not a Thanksgiving. So we didn't we didn't you know. Gotcha. Factor, but but there's no there's no Thanksgiving that we know of. But we also don't know what happened to them. Yeah, and as as English people, can we assume that these were Anglicans? This was a this was an upstanding you know Christian community, or was this? Yeah. So yeah. Right. So something something very important to understand about the settling of America as we're going to come to know it, which is as my you know my my Minnesota born and read, raised wife doesn't doesn't think this way, but I do, is that England is our mother country. We are not anything like we are without England. Minnesota's maybe next to North Dakota as the least English portion of America. So I understand why she feels that way. But England is our mother country. And we are the way we are because we are settled by an England that is religiously unsettled. If if the English behaved the way that the French, the Spanish, the way Germans do, the way Scandinavians do, even when they get to America very often where your choices are limitless by the time you've got Scandinavians or Germans coming to America in large numbers, if they behave the way if, – if the English behaved the way that those other European countries did, if the English Reformation had shaken out the way that those other Reformations, both, both Protestant and Catholic, shook out, then America should have been by right 80-plus percent Anglican or we would say in American parlance Episcopalian. Englishmen will not end up, except outside parts of Virginia, behaving with that kind of loyalty to the Church of England. And therefore, we will not be nearly so Anglican as, say, Peru will be Roman Catholic, or Quebec will be Roman Catholic, or even Newfoundland or Nova Scotia will be Presbyterian. We will fail to be that Anglican, although certainly with the Lost Colony, as well as with Jamestown, everyone is supposed to be. Right. So this gets back to the Yankee idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, so, you change your stripes. Yeah. That's um, something that is a strength, although other other yeah. people groups might consider it a flaw. <laughs> you will you will have, and we'll talk a lot more about this as we get into New England, because in talking about this, in talking about Jamestown, which is first settled in 1607 and has its own trio of ships, somewhat like Columbus's ships. In the settlement of Jamestown, you have something of an exception to the rule in that Virginia, from its founding from 1607 down to its official toleration 
kind of non-Anglican sects, they were called historically, which happens during our revolution. From that, from 1607 onward, will be officially and actually somewhat consistently Anglican. And what I mean by consistently is not only will English clergymen be supplied to Virginia, but never in sufficient numbers. And as we talk about colonial America, we'll talk about that that issue a lot because it's insufficiency of clergy that's going to drive, particularly in Virginia and other parts of what becomes the American South, into other churches. Is simply that they the English Church, the Church of England, fails to serve the American colonies, and that lack of capacity is going to drive their shrinkage over time. From if you want to start with Jamestown, from Virginia is a one hundred percent Anglican settlement. So that is going to be vastly different. But Virginia will have Anglican clergy. William and Mary, the college they will eventually found in the late 17th century is going to be an Anglican college with vows by the students to uphold the 39 articles of religion. For example, like you'd find at Oxford or Cambridge, its wealthier citizens will eventually go to Oxford and Cambridge for their education, as will also happen with South Carolina, North Carolina, and Maryland also officially Anglican at various times. But Virginia will be very much unlike New England and also the what are called the middle states, which are generally kind of Delaware, Pennsylvania. Those are the same thing at first, New Jersey and New York. And those middle states, as well as New England, will have a much better reflection of the religious diversity among certain parts of the English population than Virginia will. Virginia will eventually become like the rest of America and will eventually become predominantly Baptist. But all of that's going to happen because the people who start out in complete control of Virginia's religion really honestly fail their own population in failing to supply the growing population of, of the colony with the clergy necessary to sustain what they're what they're imagining they're going to do, which is just we're going to put and it was called this in the beginning. This is confusing. This is a New England. Yeah. There's, yeah <laughs> okay. Right. So New England is originally Virginia and they don't really know, but whatever is north of that. So like when the, <laughs> when the, when the pilgrims come in 1620, so 13 years after Jamestown is founded, when the pilgrims come, they, they call it New England because they think because that's where they're intending to go. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they were trying to go to Virginia and they're trying to be Anglicans just of a certain kind. And they're trying to go to what is already called Nova Anglia, New England. That's going to wind up as a totally different region with a totally different religious history. But they're trying to go there because in 1607, already earlier, you have settlement of, of Jamestown in what is supposed to be just, well, we're going to have a parish church and we'll have a parish priest and We'll have lords. Virginia will very consciously model itself after and try to replicate old England. Yeah. So, I mean, let's go back to that then. And and uh, the settling of Jamestown and its Thanksgiving, because we haven't really covered that. We haven't. Yeah. So the the two Catholic Thanksgivings are going to end up at, at places that, that don't survive as settlements and in the Spanish case weren't even intended to be. 
When Jamestown begins to be settled in May 1607, they intend to stay there forever. And the ways that they're going to do that are at first unknown to them. There is an idea at first, and this is key in a lot of the, uh, the settlement all the way across the continent, California, Montana, Nevada, Colorado, all the way west, is the idea that we're going to find gold. <laughs> New places will often attract people young enough and also unstable enough in a variety of ways. I don't mean mentally. I mean in the ways that the young are less stable, but a little bit more adventurous than the than the than the elderly to come and try to find their fortune here. So in 1607, they're doing okay. The problem that they run into by the winter of 1609 and 1610 is that they are spending too much time on non-agricultural pursuits and they are not able to feed themselves. This is where settlement often looks like what we would call in our context, collapse. You run into like the same problems on the way up as you do on the way down. And the incapacity to feed themselves is not, in the case of the Virginians, going to be remedied by the Indians in any way because the Indian tribes of what they're calling Virginia after their queen, Elizabeth I, the Indian tribes of Virginia are vastly more powerful and prosperous than the Indian tribes of what is going to be Plymouth Colony. So they don't want to make alliances, and they have realized after roughly two, two and a half years that the Englishmen do present some kind of weak threat. This is where I always find it helpful, regardless of how far west we're talking in America's history, to look at white settlement as originally, whenever it first gets there, basically a subset of already ongoing dynamics among the Indians. So that this is just a weak tribe. The whites are always at the beginning a weak tribe. This prevents what I think is a really key myth of the way American history is is taught in the modern day, where the whites are always like demigods. And so their advent is always like an obvious just yeah, well, signal. All you got to do is show up and the viruses take care of your enemies for yeah, you. Yeah, the viruses. You know? I mean, you're just killing people left and right, right yeah, away. And yeah, it's like you know, death all just this... flows in your train, you know. It, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, it you know, the whites become these sort of like evil gods. I don't think they're evil. I also don't think they're gods. They're they're a very weak tribe that is not able to feed itself. And there are a variety of reasons, one of which is that parts of the Indians, you know, there are different tribes and they're allied in different ways. The name that people might know is Poetan. That's that's one of his names. He's sort of the the chief of the regional tribes in the area around Jamestown which is sort of east of what's now Richmond, south, southeast of what's now DC. And they're 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 driving game away from the area around Jamestown. Jamestown has not been resupplied as they thought they would. And all of these things are just enormous problems, right? Jamestown is going to make it through the starving time because when they get on the boat to go home, which would have meant the end of Jamestown. So then you would have had failure with the Roanoke colony, failure with the Jamestown colony. They are intercepted by a resupply ship. That's that's why anything endures there. So then they turn around and they go back. They still don't really have a way of making a sustainable living. 
the real breakthrough for Jamestown is really, as well as really all of what will become the Chesapeake Bay area, including Maryland, Delaware, even Southern Pennsylvania, is a white capacity to grow tobacco. That's going to change absolutely everything. It's also going to change the way that the colony is organized. Jamestown starts out like other European colonies and certainly other English colonies do in other parts of America as to a large degree, a large number of relatively socially and economically equal young men. Fortune hunters, adventurers, sure, but like mining camps in the West or lots of other things, it, they're, they're relative equals. It, and that's that's always going to exist in a frontier situation because you and I may not be social equals, but we are maybe equally worthwhile at chopping down trees, building forts, and you know hunting right, deer. Right, and, and I think it's I think it's really important to be clear that these guys were when you mentioned like the mines, right? Um, yeah, these aren't like adventurers like your D and D party where they're hanging out at the, the great tavern telling stories of killing stuff. Right. These guys are, like you said, cutting down trees, yeah. um, you know, uh, doing what they can, whatever they're told to do. Um, and adventuring in, in the very, very survivalist kind of way. Um, the idea yeah. that the breakthrough comes from tobacco is just, uh, I, I didn't know this, but I like should have somehow I thought cotton was in there maybe sooner. Um, but but seeing uh, that like the history of America as a surviving what uh, economic entity begins yeah. begins and does it end? I don't know. It begins with this little plant um, that to this yeah. day, uh, I think a large part of our export, uh, in fact, is cigarettes. It's, it's a major industry still. Uh, other places in the world, we tax it here, right? But um, yeah, what a thing! It is it is a shadow of its former self, but the thing that is very similar to today, but perhaps quite a bit unlike, say, 1955, is that the Jamestown colony has the same relationship that a lot of people in America, in what's now called the service economy, do to corporations that sometimes even when they're ostensibly from America, do not really make their money in America and don't get taxed in America and so on, is that our, we are often once again becoming a source of extraction for people somewhere far away. Right. And that, that relationship, I think, is one that it's always important to understand politically is what is your distance from the people that are ruling over you? It is a really, really different thing. So in the small town where I grew up, you know, the mayor, you know, the township supervisors, you know, the borough council, you know, the school board, you know, all these people. You don't feel at all the same way that you do about the president of the United States as these people, you know. There was a time in American history where I could have gone to Washington, D.C. and shaken the president's hand on any given Sunday afternoon. <laughs> That's just a completely different relationship than we either have today to our own president or than Jamestown has to the people who are far away in lots of senses, including senses that we don't have today. So we know what the president looks like or we know what you know the secretary of defense sounds like when he talks. Once you come to America, some people will go back. And especially when 
it's a French colony or a Spanish colony or certain stages of English settlement, the settlers are more footloose because they're young men. But if you come here with your family, which as Jamestown grows over the later 1610s and the beginning of the 1620s, these are going to be more and more families. And we'll talk about what kind of families, but more and more families. You bring your family here. You're not going back. It is your mother country, but you're not going back. And you, it, it's not just that you couldn't. I mean, technically, you, yeah, maybe you could, but but why would you? Yeah. So a famous person that does go, as it were, back, but for her the first time to England is the woman we call Pocahontas now, from whom lots of the first families of Virginia are very proud to be interrelated and descended and stuff. Her her English name, her baptismal name is Rebecca Rolfe. She's married to the man that makes, John Rolfe, that makes tobacco something in the colony of Virginia. But when she goes to England, the reason she's going is because she's married to a wealthy, influential man. If you're a normal person and you come, you're not going back again. And that the 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 ways that distance changes your mind about life are ways that you have to understand change America from Europe, right? America is a product of Europe. There is no such thing as America without Europeans. I mean, it's just, it's not the same place. It wouldn't even be a coherent place. But the ways in which Americans differ from Europeans are very often going to have to do with the fact that once you come here, you are alone. We talked maybe a couple weeks ago about the role of the frontier. So if there's kind of two different ways to think about a frontier, right? One way is what is in front of you that has never been seen before or never been dealt with before, including people and animals and weather and lots of things, right? And that that I think is usually the way we think of it. So we think of like, we think of a cowboy and bad weather or, you know, a hostile Comanche or something. But there's also, and I, I think this is much more psychologically significant for most people because it's much easier to be connected to a past you know than a future you don't, is the frontier from the perspective of everything that's behind you. And maybe in the 19th century, by the time we have railroads, you could go back there. So if you just totally fail to make it, you know, mining gold in California, you can go back to New Hampshire. But in 1615, you know, you are, you are in the Chesapeake Bay somewhere. Right. You're not going, you're not going anywhere. Right, right, right. Like, so, so like if I went through all of the work right now, yeah, move my family to Thailand, we're not moving back, right? Like that's the idea. If we're moving back, that's it's the idea. Some, something went very, very wrong. Right? Yeah. I'm um, right. not going to take that kind of investment, that kind of risk and not um, keep going. And especially now, I'm that we could just get on a plane and come back, right? But when it's right. several months of boat journey and overland on whatever, right? Uh, yeah. It's a whole different thing. So I, I think the point is, is really well taken that it's, it's sort of the Cortez burns the ships things. Uh, you bring your family yeah. along and now you're, you got skin in the game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and 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 the, the family that they bring along is significant. So I, I want to distinguish kind of three different groups of people that are going to matter in Virginia. And I'm going to deal first with the one that is the origin of basically modern thinking about America. Sometimes now in a like Christianity mapped onto completely different things than the Bible way, 
which is America's original sin of the black slaves that are brought by Sephardic Jewish Portuguese traders from Africa to Virginia in 1619. That's why it was called the 1619 Project, America's real founding or original founding or whatever the New York Times was calling it. And the, the purpose there in 1619 is to do something that's already being done at in points south of Virginia, particularly in the Caribbean, but especially in Brazil. And there's a really wonderful graphic I used to use with my students at Temple. I can't recall where it was, but it was basically just an animated graphic of where African slaves went to in the New World. And everyone who ever went to North America is a trickle compared to everyone who ever went to South America and the Caribbean. So what's happening in 1619 is that the same guys that are shipping people out of mainly West Africa along what's called the Gould Coast to South America now are trying to open up a new market in North America because tobacco requires intensive hand cultivation. And the problem that planters in Virginia, which is our second group, planters and their families cannot plant on the scale that they want without enormous amounts of labor that they're not going to provide and that you cannot coerce enough freeborn Englishmen into coming to do. So the original solution there was to have a mixture of white labor and Indian labor. The Indian labor slave labor largely, but the problem is they never they never succeed in enslaving enough people or coercing enough people to do that. So the, the solution to the labor shortage is going to be increasingly over time, although not really decisively until the 18th century. So we're talking about about 100 years from the time that you get your first black slaves in America to a time when if you said slave, people thought of someone black in the South. But it's always a solution. And we've talked about this way. I mean, I, in this way, I don't really see the introduction of slavery and immigration. They're different, but they're not. They're always a solution by someone who is wealthy to a problem of provision of labor. And so you can look at this in very, I mean, there obviously you got you got moral differences, you got historical differences, you got geographic differences, but the basic economic problem is always the same. I want to make a lot of money by doing something relatively quickly or at an enormous scale. And I can only do that by getting tons of people who don't currently live here. And so that's why you're increasingly going to get importation of African slaves into Virginia is to work tobacco crops. It, this this will shift 150, 175 years later to cotton. But certainly in colonial times, it's all about tobacco, really all over the Chesapeake Bay, but starting in Virginia. So that's two of the three? Mm-hmm. What's the third? The third are what will come to be called poor whites. And in the 17th century, they're often not legally distinguishable from blacks. That is, both classes tend to be enslaved. The poor whites are going to be your foundational population for what is going to come to be called Appalachia. And the reason that I saved them for the last is that in colonial Virginia, you have 
two out of the four, what David Hackett Fisher in the book Albion Seed sees, and we can quibble, and I think there are more groups to be taken into account than he does, but what he sees as two out of the four foundational Anglo-American populations for determining what America is now like. The poor whites are going to always exist in relatively smaller numbers in the South than in the North or in Virginia, where you can plant tobacco profitably, the tidewater, than in the mountains. Because wherever you have free labor, it will be driven out and undercut by slave labor. So throughout American history, the places with the highest black populations are going to be places with very low wages because slave labor will drive out free labor. That's This is a point that's going to be made at the time of the Civil War that everyone forgets now. So the poor whites are often going to come over as indentured servants. This is the origin of, I don't know, I want to say 80% of the people on my father's side of the family is that they're brought over as, I always think this is a euphemism, indentured servants. They're slaves, essentially. And they will generally need to run away in order to be free. And that's going to become the role of places in the what's called the Great Valley, the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, uh, the Cumberland Valley further north, and the mountains, is that these will become places where whites can go without either competing with slave labor to make a living and where they can also own property because Virginia will be defined by the fact that the planters largely own property. Uh, It's very, yeah, it's very hard for anyone else to own. So this, the uh, famous world economic forum of you own nothing and you will be happy. That's definitely not true for either blacks or poor whites (laughs) in colonial Virginia. And when anyone can get away from that, he, he does as soon as he can. Well, they just didn't do it right. They'll, they'll do it right this time because we know, (laughs) we know better. Um, You know, that helps me really understand a little more of the, the kind of bluegrass Appalachia freedom, um, stay off my land. I'd rather be a hermit with a hut than uh, pay taxes. Like that, that kind of makes a little sense to me now. Um, and, and to break down this idea that the indentured servitude is slavery, it, it may be um, kind of by parallel. You can imagine that you've got, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars in loans. You got a uh, annual right. interest rate of nine yeah. to fifteen percent, and you're making you know what eight percent of that actual loan a year, twenty five percent of that actual loan a year. Like you're not going to pay this off. Right. It, it, this is your credit cards. If your credit yeah. cards are all in full debt right now, hey, <laughs> you know what it's like. Except you're paying for plastic rather than from a place where your kids can actually like put you know seed in the ground, but. Right. Indentured servitude. So then the result is that they run away. The advantage they have is they are not marked so as to be seen as distinct the way that the African um, is. And that again yeah. becomes kind of that albatross original sin of racism, uh, which is real in terms of hatred for men who look different than you. Um, but it needs to be understood as not like the thing that was the reason all this is happening, right? It wasn't like they're all, let's hurt the blacks. It was more like there's some men with money who need poor men. Some happen to be white. Some happen to be black. We're going to make them all slaves. But when the blacks run away, they're easier to catch. 
sad fact of history, right? I mean, it's just you stick out, and then there, that's where the racism really grows out of. Uh, neither Dr. Kuntz nor myself want to uh, in any way be heard to be advocating for the, uh, I don't know, slavery. <laughs> Period, well, I, right? I think, you know? I, I think uh, one thing that is helpful to remember is that if you can get both whites and blacks enslaved, that also means th- that what you're dealing with in the history of the United States is actually something a little less when, and, in, and in this case, a lot less uncommon or unusual than what got blacks sold into slavery by other blacks from Africa to European traders, largely in the beginning Portuguese, and what got whites for a variety of reasons, sometimes fear of punishment. Here's your option. You can go to Virginia or you can go to jail. Or in many cases that people were bound through a series of usually family debts, sort of the way that if you've ever studied the Old Testament, you realize this is how people got into slavery and then they can be freed because they're freed of their debts eventually, right? At a, in a Sabbath year or a Jubilee year. Well, that's how a lot of people got to Virginia and Maryland is <laughs> because their family was indebted. And so this, this is also where I, I generally find that, you know, People want to say that America is unique or it's a unique country or something. And I and I get why they say that, okay? And I love America too, but I don't need to find it to be completely unlike everywhere else. And the myth that America's original sin is like, you know, we don't like black people. So we need to love black people all of the time and affirm everything that's ever happened to them or that they say. That's driven by the idea that we're unique in just the same way that people that say think like America was came into being as a country, like the day that, you know, the last state that we needed to ratify the constitution, like that's when that happened. I mean, it, it's just sort of the, the idea that we are unique because of some unique set of historical circumstances is used by all sides of our political spectrum, I think, to either be ignorant of the things we've talked about today and maybe even more practically to forget people because they don't fit into that. I mean, where do, where do you put these white people also used to be slaves. <laughs> well, I mean, where do you, where do you, how, that's not a political issue anyone is advocating for. I, no I one's going to give them reparations. I, my platform has reparations for indentured right. servitude. Reparations for everybody. Right. That's but right. I mean, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't really, the search for uniqueness, I think is one of the chief delusions people have about America's yes, history. Yes. And, and I mean, isn't it right that this is effectively the, the myth of every so-called like great state, like the the reason Babylon thinks it's special is because it thinks it's special. You know, the reason Assyria is so yeah. great is because we're special. We're different. What makes you different, Sparta? This is Sparta. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's it. It is the common thread of mankind that when good things happen to us, we think it's because we did it. Just straight up. Yeah, I, I I think that the uniqueness thing is now just being turned against us that we were uniquely evil hmm. or that in the same way we talked about whites as demigods, that, that whites are uniquely responsible, even if you're like Polish and Lithuanian and, right, right. and get here until 1885. And to be super clear about that, given the current political spectrum and various things going on within our, our synod, um, this is not something that you're suggesting someone could say. That's in fact dogmatic assertion by yes. certain frankly, public political enemies of Christians everywhere, right? 
yeah, it, it's either asserted or it's like assumed. Like when, like when people talk about, you know, black Americans as like, we need to help them. Well, they would never say that about white Americans. They would never say we need to help white Americans. Why would they never say that? They would never say that because they think that this is a, an utterly unique situation. And they also assume that black people are utterly uniquely unable to help themselves. That is an underlying presupposition of many of it's those. It's underlying yeah. and it's almost never expressed. No, it's not expressed because you can't understand it with feelings. It feels wrong and so it must be rejected. I, I think that is one of the hardest, that idea. Um, yeah, that, it's that very by, hard. By doing, by jumping on the Black Lives Matter, Marxism, everything else is racism train, you are stating that the black man is incompetent. You, the, you can't, you can't, but no one sees that. And as a result, they think what I just said is that the black man's incompetent because I'm racist, right? So, so the real question for me is not like, how do we who are busy using our brain to think about these things as if it were ideology, philosophy, logic, um, how do we communicate uh, in a realm where they're not working on that level? They're, they're barbaric in their approach to this. Um, yeah. that, that to me seems like a the, the, the million dollar well, silver bucket, right? Looking for the silver right. bullet. Yeah. I I think communicating the idea that if American history is actually not horribly, terribly, or wonderfully distinct from every other country ever, it is simply easier to see that in America and in its history, you get the same display of sin and wickedness as well as grace and providences of God that you get in every other country. The reason to do America specifically is partly to, in my mind, bring clarity to that and specificity to that from our own history, but not to say that I, we need to assert that America was uniquely blessed or uniquely amazing. I don't actually, I mean, <laughs> the blacks coming to Jamestown are coming from slave societies to a different slave society. Mm. The whites coming from England are coming from debt servitude to just clear labor servitude in Virginia. It's not really that different. <laughs> okay. It's a new set of circumstances that's going to play out in different ways because of a different, the, those different circumstances, but it's not unique <laughs> at all. It's just, new, right? But it's not unique. It's getting started, but it's replicating patterns of life available in Africa, South America, and in the British Isles. China, you know, I, you know yeah, I, and deep in Asia, China. deep Asia. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way that humanity, slavery is the way that humanity has operated. So this is where it, I, if I'm going to advocate that the United States is unique, what is unique is that we tried to free our slaves, like kind of the officially. Yes, yes. The legal abolition of slavery with military enforcement of abolition and the death of hundreds of thousands of white men, uh -huh. in addition to black troops on the, on the Union side, for the sake, eventually, it wasn't the original public stated aim of the Civil War, but nope. it became one That's of what the games. Yeah. That's unique. Yep. Yeah. That's unique. Yeah. Not the existence of slavery. That's right. totally normal. Right. So I'm I'm not I mean, I didn't say like 80% of my father's side of the family is descended to get anyone's sympathy. It's normal. 
the fact that we're not enslaved is wonderful and unusual. If, if, <laughs> okay. if we're not enslaved now, if we haven't all lost right. it together yeah, and just right. don't realize it, right. and I'm okay being the best pampered, you know, electricity and heater slaved, you know, with, with indoor plumbing, <laughs> like, that's okay. <laughs> right. But, yeah. but. Yeah, the um, master gave us internet, so that was nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh, the, <clears throat> I'm going to lose it. Uh, the place that we have come to, uh, what it ought to say that, that we are unique in this very specific way that something that yeah. really hasn't happened outside of the year of Jubilee in Israel, if they ever actually did it, which remains yeah, kind doubt. of a thing, yeah, right? Press X to doubt. Is yeah. that we actually did have a year of Jubilee and that we sit now, um, really a uh, hundred plus years from a second sort of attempt at, at making this clear as part of our identity as a people that we just, we do not enslave other people groups strictly because they are other people groups like we're in the best position you would think for humanitarian and the integrity of humanity's uh, cultural needs right now and in, instead of realizing how we've got something that we didn't have to have without yeah. I mean all those deaths happen to make this happen and what we're going to do is we're going to squabble over this and actually blame the present as if it's worse when we're really all of us all of us slipping into the quickie mart and getting your soda pop are so much better off in terms of your ability to survive than for goodness sake, 1619, you know, right. uh, 1495. Um, right. we, we have such opportunity right now and that we're going to sit here and, and try to like blame some history, which ultimately, and this is your point, right? It comes down to being a religious phenomenon, this. It, it is a religious phenomenon, and the, and the reason that we focused on Thanksgivings, and here's the third one, because it's not 1607, it's 1619, like you just mentioned. The reason we focused on Thanksgivings is because it's notable to me that these people living under vastly worse circumstances than we did, white, black, Indian, all of them, they will generally mark the beginning of their settlements in various ways by Thanksgivings sometimes by perpetual thanksgivings. There is reportedly a thanksgiving in 1610 at Jamestown. The one that is a little bit more famous, though, down to being called, even down to today, the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival, is at a place southwest of there called Barclay Plantation. And it's in 1619 that a group of men led by Woodleaf settle Barclay Plantation to raise tobacco. And what they're going to do is institute an ongoing, a perpetual day of Thanksgiving, maybe involving Turkey. I don't know. Not famously, though. But Cig it didn't involve <laughs> Sounds like it didn't cigars involve Indians. Were, cigars were on the line, it sounds cigars, like. Cigars, <laughs> yeah. Cigars and, uh, and, a nice, and a good old-fashioned Episcopal Church service. To have a perpetual day of Thanksgiving for God's mercies in the new world. Hmm. That... That predates the the pilgrims by by any measure by a year and a half. But the other thing that it does is that it shows you that America is a place that in its own settlers' minds was a place of the display of God's mercies. And that is I don't think that's unique either. These were Christian people. That's why they thought that way. But it is a way, I think, a much more profitable way to to think about the story that we've been telling and that we will tell at much greater length 
is when you begin to think about life and also your nation's history, your people's history in terms of Thanksgiving rather than in term, and I don't mean like a certain Thursday in November, not certainly not yet. That's a, that's a civil war thing, but in terms of giving thanks to God for the things that you actually have in life versus all that you lack or all that you wish had occurred. To me, that's much more like Joseph at the end being like, you meant it to me for evil. And then you can acknowledge evil things that did happen. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like happy that on my dad's side of the family, we got here because we were in debt slavery and who knows what else. And, you know, men were dying at the age of 30, you know, who knows, malaria, yellow fever, who knows what happened to everybody. I'm not happy about that. And it is evil to die at 30 of yellow fever, but that God turns these things to good and that goodness is actually displayed in life and can be meditated upon and and thanks can be given for it. I think that's a much more profitable way to think about the fact that you are alive, whether in an old world or, you know, by God's grace in a new world. You you said something a year and a half ago, maybe. I mean, on ongoing, uh, Doctor Kuntz, you will will give me gems that will stick with me for for time. Um, you said that you were grateful for your family, not immediate. Um, and we were talking even to the layers of like. Um, you know, five, six, seven, eight generations back and, mm-hmm. and uh, studying yeah. the history of your family and all this. And, and you said it was like, it doesn't matter what they did, who they were, what their interests were. I'm grateful they survived. And that has stuck with me um, to, to see that uh, looking back to the past of these times where it, yeah, your whatever your family was going through, whatever my family was going through when they ended up, you know, uh, farmsteading in in Iowa, or uh, you know, I got I got one uh, great grandfather who was on a, a court bench in in the Dakotas, and but the family, dear heavens, what happened to them? It, it, it didn't go well. Um, yeah, but they they lived through these times. And uh, they did feed their kids, right? Like they they yeah. protected their neighborhood. Uh, they dwelt within a moral society that uh, had a virtue system that was established for thousands upon thousands of years. Uh, they understood law. They believed in beauty. And, and they they didn't give up on those things. Even in a world in which people are dying in the 30s and living in indentured servitude, they, they pressed on that we could, again, could be here. And so to yeah. find the thanksgiving, the gratitude um, in, in that – uh, but then for that reason also, uh, really to inherit our legacy as Americans for for, for what it is um, and, and, and see then that there is something super valuable uh, in knowing that we all bleed the same. Yeah. But then just as valuable uh, that we don't all believe the same. And, and when you don't all believe the same and, and some of those who believe believe evil things, well, you might end up bleeding more uh, than everybody wants. So as Jesus Christ lives, you are listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? 
Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.